Hi, I'm Jayant Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. We round up the week once again by looking at the big international stories from an Indian perspective. As I mentioned last week, this is something that we hope to make a regular feature. All of our segments for this show of course focus on COVID-19 on the spread of the deadly coronavirus around the world. That is the issue that has dominated headlines over the past 2 weeks and seems like it will do so for the weeks to come. Our lead segment today is on the successful efforts by China and South Korea now in containing the disease. The government of China has even reported that the peak of the outbreak has already been reached and the reported cases now are coming down there even as other countries around the world are reporting thousands of new infections by the day remember that the who earlier in the week declared covid-19 a pandemic but added also that it is the first pandemic in human history that can be brought under control key to that analysis they said is the progress made by china and south korea and we will look at what india can learn about measures taken by both countries as we go through a worrying rise in coronavirus cases all across the country joining me for that interview today is james chow he is a world health organization goodwill ambassador and the host of the china current a digital show about our global future We have brief segments also with the Hindu's business editor Raghuveer Srinivasan on the crash of global markets that's been a big story all this week that's also inspired by the coronavirus of course and he discusses the measures taken by central banks and central governments around the world whether they have been effective and if India has made similar efforts rounding off the show today our Sri Lanka correspondent Meera Srinivasan gives us an update on the coronavirus from the island nation and how it has affected crucial industries like tourism as always you can write to us with comments and feedback you can find the contact details in the show notes and you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts castbox and stitcher just search for in focus by the hindu and let's start the show James Chow, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for us. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be with you. Right. So the big question, the big news that we're following now are that you know every day we get a new news report that cases in China are decreasing, and they've done a really stunning job in bringing it under control. I think the government there said that you know the peak has already been reached and now it's coming down. Um. So the big question on everyone's minds here, given that we are having a you know sharp rise in the number of cases reported it's going up every day is um what are the lessons that india can learn from china's response well i think instead of asking what are the lessons that we can learn from china it could be what does china's pretty horrific experience on the human level what does that extend to other countries including india no one has got it completely right but certainly they have transformed their response and in that case they do offer um somewhat of a textbook approach to how to handle this particular virus which is we all know is very smart and has outsmarted all of us so far um but at the same time uh, does this now set a template for all infectious disease outbreaks 
into the future. I think when we look at China, what they did from the start is that they erected two pillars of science and public health, and then they worked from that point on. I think what worked for them and what could work for many other countries is the discipline with which they got people to follow the public health measures and to follow them through day after day after day and week after week. And as each day and as each week passes, there's always a risk of outbreak fatigue or a risk of people saying that they're not going to follow what they've been told to do. So discipline's been very important. But as I said, there was a structure that was set up around this. Then, of course, they combined law enforcement with community leaders, with healthcare leaders, and they brought all sectors into this mix, including airports and customs and immigration and other forms of transport. Because, of course, when you talk about locking down a region of over 50 million people and other parts of the country being restricted access from each other, it does require many different inner muscles of that whole body to work separately, but also to work in coordination. So I think what really works was the whole of government and whole of society approach. And then, of course, you've got the political leadership, which we know from HIV and AIDS, and India has had a very successful uh, response to that as part of the global response. We know that political leadership is very important. I think it's important also to say here that a lot of things did work in China that may not work elsewhere because of the style of governance. And its style of governance is unique. But I think that what is universal to all leadership now is making the decisions that are the right decisions versus the decisions that are the popular ones. Whole of government, whole of society, get them working together. Right. And I just want to um, ask you if you can elaborate maybe a little bit on some of the measures that China took, because what what we kind of you know what news reporting in india suggests and i think what they really play up is the aspect of um this lockdown on the hubei province around uh, the region around wuhan and um the the comparison is made that you know while china can do something like that as you mentioned it's it's more difficult for other countries especially uh, here in india we might find that a very difficult task to achieve but I think there, are, there is more to the Chinese response than actually just focusing on what we might consider here as a, as a draconian measure. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on a little bit of those other measures that they might have taken. So if we look at the specific measures that they implemented, one of them was, of course, uh, that people weren't simply allowed to just wander around. They banned all forms of gatherings, not only large mass public gatherings that Europe is still considering, even though the outbreak has already reached into their populations. Uh, But in China, in Wuhan, and in the areas around Wuhan, as you said, they simply didn't allow any kind of gathering. So they went door to door uh, to each home to record the names and members of each household. And they do that every day. So they go to your home, they check that everybody is there, and they check your temperatures at the same time. I think it was once every three or possibly once every four days, they will allow one member per household to venture outside to go and buy groceries and other things that they do need for their daily necessities. Um, But if they find you not following those rules, I think there's a price to pay for that. So there was a very strict 
and blanket measure. And you mentioned draconian, and of course that derives from Draco, who was the first recorded democratic legislator in ancient Greece. It may be seen as excessively harsh and severe, but I think that these are excessively harsh and severe times. This coronavirus does not respect what passport you carry, where you live, what family you were born into, what your socioeconomic background happens to be, where you went to college, who your friends are. It, it simply doesn't recognize any of those conditions. And the sooner we get to grips with that, um, the sooner we're able to move on. You saw Norway, uh, Emma Solberg, the prime minister there, they haven't had a single death in Norway, yet they do have cases. And she's ordered a lockdown of the entire country. I think that shows in her case, uh, leadership of a very strong and bold kind, because she doesn't need to, there to be deaths in Norway. She simply looks around and see that what's coming is going to be inevitable. So I think with China, they had that. For example, I spoke to my family in Shanghai, and they told me that they every time they went in and out of the compound where they live, so their apartment complex, um, they had to have their temperatures recorded in and out. They were still able to get groceries and other items delivered by courier service, but they had to meet them at the gate and those people weren't allowed to enter. So they're almost sealing off within their own cities and towns. Um, the measures that you see on a city level is replicated on local district levels are repeated on every apartment complex so that there is that discipline as I spoke of earlier and no one violates that. And I think that that's what worked really, really well for them. So the WHO has been generally very complimentary of China's response. Um, I think they mentioned that this is a controllable pandemic um, and they cited the, the measures taken by China and South Korea and bringing it under control. But are there things that we can learn from in terms of what China did wrong as well, so that countries don't repeat those mistakes? And I'm going to bring up India specifically in this context, because we're in the very early stages now of the outbreak. Um, the cases now are listed at about a little bit over 70 uh, at the time of recording this podcast. Are there things that other people could learn from what China could have done better? Absolutely. Um, when you look at China, we have to be quite careful here in what we mean by China. There is the China meaning Wuhan, the city. There is China meaning Hubei, the province. And then there's China, of course, at a state central level, uh, which refers to the political capital in Beijing, where those decisions are taken. Uh, if we look at what happens, and if you look at a, uh, a, a, an infectious disease and how they behave, um, you know, Dr. Tedros has said this again and again, there's a very simple six-step process for countries to follow. That's to detect, test, treat, isolate, trace, and then mobilize your people in an outbreak. And in that context, if you look at it that way, you'll understand that pulling off all those measures, one day is going to make all the difference. One hour could even make a difference. And in this case, could it have moved faster in China and could it have moved faster and more effectively in those steps? I think that the Chinese government has answered that themselves on a number of occasions. A number of public officials have been dismissed 
and disciplined. And the government has said that there were shortcomings. So I think in terms of what could have been done better, I think we can all do better in terms of that first step, which is detecting. And I think that's where the first problem may have occurred. Because, of course, we're talking about a seasonal uh, flu period that we are in all around the world, China included. And this very clever new virus called COVID-19 exhibits many flu-like symptoms, even though it is not a flu. So while we have coughers, uh, cough, sorry, and, uh, and maybe some throat issues and some temperature and fever, that could also easily have been confused as flu that is endemic year in, year out, rather than COVID-19. Um, could there be more done beyond that? Well, I think when they say that there were shortcomings, uh, it certainly seems to indicate that things could have moved faster and more accurately. But I think what's important, and I think they were very heavily criticised in those early weeks, especially when you look into January and February, I think what they did then, which was very good for its people, was just to be very single-minded and focus on the job in hand. They had thousands of health workers who have been infected. Some of them have died. We've seen all the heartbreaking pictures online, on social media, and let alone the patients who were suffering themselves. Yet they were able to build this hospital in 10 days, I think two hospitals in around 10 days. And they opened up and repurposed many existing large facilities like sports halls and other kinds of convention centers. And I think that's the other aspect that we can learn from. If they didn't move fast enough in the beginning, I think they really played catch up in the end. And they were pretty draconian about that in their attitude. I think being single minded is very important and blocking out a lot of the noise around you. Because at the end of the day, you're answerable only to your own people and to their lives and to their futures. And I just want to bring up um, the, the example of South Korea, um, who have also managed to flatten the curve of new infections, largely perceived to be without the kind of, I'm going to use this word again, draconian measures that uh, China took. Um, and I was just wondering, does does what South Korea did perhaps offer more relevant lessons for India? I think that what South Korea done has done is it has been very bold as well. Um, obviously, you can't look at one country and cut and paste what they have done, draconian or not. And sometimes draconian can be a, a good thing as well. Um, you can't cut and paste these measures and apply it to your own country. Each country has their own conditions and their own settings and their own needs, their own challenges, and certainly their own strengths. And in terms of India, where you look at the public health system there, which is already very strong, uh, and and you look at how they're able to mobilize what will soon be the largest population in the world, that gives me faith that it too can find and cherry pick from the examples around the world and apply it to itself. I mean, that is quote unquote, the benefit of coming later into this outbreak. I think China bore the brunt because it was the first and certainly the countries that lined up behind it. It's almost like the second country could learn from the first, the third from the second and also the first. And so it goes on and on and on like that. And in terms of South Korea, which, of course, as you said, is a very different style of governance and they took different measures. But certainly I think their public health measures were very similar. 
and also that commitment, that willingness to say that they were going to act on it. What Tedros has said in his press conference when he called this as being characterized as a pandemic, he said that he was alarmed by the inaction from governments, from countries. Their country took a bold step. They called it a war in South Korea, and they responded likewise as well. And it was very different in South Korea because, of course, they had very large community clusters of infections, most recently from a call centre, and, of course, now infamously before that, from a church community that got infected and it seemed to spread very fast. So that brings us back to what we said earlier. When you detect, test, treat, isolate, trace, and then mobilize your people in a response effort, what that does is to ensure or certainly drastically reduce the likelihood that a few individual cases does not become larger and evolve even further into the community cluster that we saw in South Korea. I was speaking to a friend and different friends in South Korea, and these are two things that I took away from those conversations. The first is that in South Korea, they are really, really tough on testing. They test for everything. They test you again and again and again when you go in and out of the country. And so they're very rigorous. So it wasn't really a surprise that we saw large numbers of confirmed cases, simply because I think they were on the job. They were on it. They followed through and they identified who exactly was confirmed. And therefore, where do we go next with isolating, treating and uh, tracing their contacts? And then it, it becomes like an epidemiologist, you're almost like a virus detective. And then going into the society to see who else do you come in contact with. In a way, it's not rocket science, but in a way, it's very specific and it's quite a skill to have as well. And I would say one other thing that we can draw from South Korea, a friend of mine who works in public health said he was not as shocked by an outbreak because we in public health know very well that the next global health emergency is always coming and there'll be one after this, except this one is particularly brutal. But that in this century and in this modern era, he said that there were still these religious cults being able to operate in secrecy. And I think whenever you introduce secrecy, like travel restrictions, that always creates a problem. People are scared because they don't want to get caught up by the law. So they then keep their travel history secret. And if they have broken the law or broken a regulation, they're less likely to access treatment for fear of being found out. So we need to be careful about the travel restrictions that we're seeing loom up around the world. Um, certainly when we look at a country like India, the biggest manufacturer of generic medicines, you are in a prime position already. But for example, a lot of the ingredients for those generic medicines are coming from China. We live in an interconnected, globalized world. And I think countries have been very quick to put up barriers around them when, in fact, they should think more about mobilizing their community leaders and getting them to work on their own side. James Chow, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for giving us those fascinating insights. Thank you very much for having me and good luck to everybody in India. Raghuveer, hi, welcome to the podcast. So markets around the world are entering what we call the bear phase, that is a prolonged period of decline. And India also has seen in the past week two really bad days in the stock markets. Now, the question to ask is, have governments and central banks around the world responded effectively to this market downturn? 
And can we detail some of the policy measures taken internationally that really stood out to you? Hi, Jayant. Yeah, the last week has been a particularly bad one for stock markets and the financial markets uh, globally, uh, not just in India. Uh, well, central banks have reacted. Uh, in fact, they even uh, preempt, tried to preempt the market uh, crash with uh, interest rate cuts. Uh, uh, the U.S. cut rates, uh, I think, more than a week ago or 10 days ago. And uh, we had uh, central banks of other countries like Australia, uh, Canada. And uh, this week, the Bank of England has also cut rates. But that's pretty much what a uh, financial market regulator can do at this point in time. Uh, apart from that, the stock market authorities have halted trading whenever it uh, became overheated when uh, indices fell below a certain uh, you know percentage and uh, uh, they have been keeping a watchful eye on stock price movements to ensure that nothing uh, uh, you know nothing uh, unfair happens in the market but that's pretty much all that they can do at this point in time and uh, not just uh, india every country in the world right so has india's rbi and central government put out any coordinated effort to calm the markets and can they take a cue from this, from what any of these other countries around the world are doing? Or do they need a more, do they need a more tailor-made approach for the Indian context? So far as India goes, uh, the Reserve Bank of India and the central government have been counselling caution. They have been trying to explain to the market and to uh, analysts and managers that uh, things are not as bad as uh, what the global indices show. And India is on a strong wicket economically. It has uh, got the macro numbers, which are strong. And growth is showing signs of a rebound even before this problem set in. So uh, we had the chief economic advisor, uh, you know, speaking to the press and explaining these factors. As for the Reserve Bank of India, uh, the one significant step that it took is to uh, increased liquidity in the forex markets uh, by uh, introducing on Thursday uh, a plan to uh, swap rupee and dollars. Uh, this is uh, going to be implemented on Monday the 16th when about $2 billion worth of currency will be swapped. So this is uh, expected to lend an amount of stability to the forex market where the rupee has been falling quite sharply in the last week along with uh, uh, you know uh, stock prices. But uh, um, there's nothing that India can do separately. The formula has to, be, has to be the same like every other country in the world. And uh, in a time of market fall like this, all that we can do is keep uh, a sharp eye to ensure there are no unfair practices. But apart from that, uh, we have to uh, you know, take it on our chin and move forward. Mira, thank you for joining us today. So as you know, there's been an alarming increase in the number of coronavirus cases reported from India. In some ways, whatever's been happening in the political world, that continues to be the big story. And it's likely to be so in the coming weeks as well. So I thought there was no better time to ask you about what's happening in your region. And I'd like you to address it from a health perspective, but also speak about the effects that it's going to have economically and on tourism. Sure, Jayant. As far as Sri Lanka is concerned, as of today, there are two reported cases of COVID-19. The first case was diagnosed on March 10th when a local tour guide 
tested positive. The patient has since been receiving treatment at the infectious uh, diseases hospital here. Today, March 12, a second case has been confirmed by authorities. The patient, again said to be a tour guide, was reportedly in contact with the first patient and is also now undergoing treatment. Now, these are the first two cases of Sri Lankan nationals being diagnosed with coronavirus. Last month, we had a Chinese tourist who tested positive. She was quarantined and Sri Lankan health officials provided complete medical care. She recovered well and returned to China on February 19. Now, we know that there are only two reported cases as we speak. We also know that Sri Lanka has a particularly efficient public health system, arguably the best in the region. However, there's widespread concern and fear in the island. School authorities have closed schools for a few weeks as a precautionary measure. Public have been asked to avoid social gatherings. And the tourism sector has reported a big loss. Now, when you compare statistics from February last year to the arrivals this year, there's a nearly 18% slump. And people in the industry attribute that to COVID-19. And in countries like Sri Lanka and neighboring Maldives, we know that the economies are quite reliant on the tourism sector. And when the tourism industry suffers a big loss, it really has an impact on the country's larger economic uh, well-being. In Sri Lanka, there is also additional speculation over conduct of parliamentary elections, which are scheduled for April 25. In the midst of this COVID-19 scare, which has global implications and local manifestations, there are questions as to whether authorities might actually go ahead and hold elections. Thank you.